In John chapter 5, verse 18, the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Some say he did, while others say he didn't. Well, stay with us to find out what Jesus himself said about the Sabbath. listening to the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. This is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network, and we begin today's broadcast with this question from a listener in Oregon. He writes, could you please explain how many resurrections there are going to be? There are two resurrections, the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the unsaved. The Lord Jesus said, you'll recall, that some that will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised for judgment. Now, he makes this statement, and I think I ought to read this. I'm reading now John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, Pass from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. They that hear shall live. That is, I think, the rapture. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of God. Marvel not at this. Now listen to this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now, and they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation or judgment. Do you see? You have actually two resurrections. Now, we are told that first resurrection goes in a series. You have, for instance, first the taking out in fact, Christ is the first fruits. Afterward, those that are Christ, it is coming. They will be taken out at the rapture. Now, the Old Testament saints, I do not think, are raised at that time. They're not raised, according to Daniel 12, 1, until after the Great Tribulation period. They are raised to enter the kingdom here on this earth. Then you have the resurrection. We are told of the tribulation saints. And we're told that that's the first resurrection. That is, that ends the first resurrection. And you have, therefore, three definite groups. The church, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints. Now, they're the ones that are included in the first resurrection. Then you have the resurrection of the lost. At the end of the millennium, there is the great white throne then you have the resurrection there. You see, God does things apparently very orderly, and this is just part in which he's very orderly. Now, here's an interesting question. The listener writes, Do you believe that the mixed multitude that left Egypt during the Exodus were all believers? If the Red Sea deliverance speaks of salvation, would they then be believers who were out of fellowship with the Lord? Now, here is an example of a question that I do not feel that I could give a categorical and dogmatic answer to it. Any more than today uh, can I answer 
the question when somebody comes to me, especially here in California, and especially when I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, they would say to me, Why, Dr. McGee, I know this Mr. So-and-so. I knew him back in Chicago or Detroit or some other place. Could be many places. And he taught a men's Bible class, and he's a very prominent layman, and he's come here to California. He's drinking now and running around. He's divorced his wife. Was he a Christian or is he a Christian? And I have to say, I don't know. I'm not able to answer the question because only God can see the heart and only God can judge. But there are certain patterns that are put down. There are certain rules that you can follow. It is true that when the children of Israel left the land of Egypt, there were a group of people that actually didn't know whether they were horseback or afoot. They didn't know who to go with. To begin with, there had been mixed marriages. An Egyptian man had fallen in love with a Jewish girl and married her. And a Jewish man had fallen in love with an Egyptian girl and had married her. Now you have the offspring that are being pulled two different ways. And it wasn't so bad as long as the two families were neighbors, or at least they could live one at one end of the town and the other at the other end of the same town. But when the children of Israel took out and started back to the promised land, these folk had to make up their mind. And some, of course, stayed. Others made up their minds to go. And they crossed the Red Sea. And we always think of the Red Sea as being a picture of redemption. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea the writer to the Hebrews said. So these people did have enough faith to cross the Red Sea. And I would like to think that they were saved, but they became a thorn in the flesh of Moses. And they became a great deterrent to the children of Israel. They caused them to miss many blessings. And they, to me, are a picture of a great many folk in the church today. Now, I, over a period of years, there are certain people I very candidly cannot say whether they're saved or lost. I don't know. They make a profession of knowing Christ. They can even give a testimony. And yet their lives certainly do not mirror a Christian at all. And so I have to reserve judgment and say, I don't know. And here is an example of one of those questions. I've always wondered about the mixed multitude. Now, we know this, that they never got into the promised land. They never got the blessings that should have been theirs. That whole crowd of the mixed multitude died in the wilderness, and they never knew what it was to do that. And I'm convinced that there are a great many Christians that are saved that never get out of the carnal state. Now, I wish they would and would pray they would, but they just simply don't get out of that state at all. And I can be very harsh with them at times. I found that they're a great hindrance in the church today. fact of the matter is, as one great preacher in this country said years ago, that 20 atheists 
can't do near the damage that one lukewarm church member can do. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Washington, D.C. She says, Could you explain what Esau's selling of his birthright represents to us today? Well, as most of you know who listen to this program, Esau sold his birthright. He had a wonderful opportunity of being the oldest son in the family because although he was a twin, he came out first and he was declared the firstborn. Now, the firstborn in a home in that day had certain privileges as well as responsibilities. He was the high priest of the family. He inherited a double portion. He had many responsibilities given to him that none of the other children of the father had. Now, Esau despised this birthright in the fact that he did not consider, even though he's in the godly line that's leading to Jesus Christ, he didn't consider that that was to him of any importance at all. And he despised it because he was willing to sell it for a bowl of soup. And believe me, friends, that is certainly reducing prices. He really had a sale on his birthright. He cut off about 99 and 44, one's 100 percent of what it was worth and sold it for a miserable bowl of soup. And that indicated that he did despise the privileges that went with it. He's had certain options that any other children in the family would not have. He did not care for that. He didn't care to be the priest of the family. He didn't care to serve God at all. But he's a son. He's a son as much as any other son is. In fact, more so, he's the firstborn. Now, you say, how do we apply this to the Christian today? You must understand that there was never a question about whether Esau was a son in the godly line that was leading to Christ, that he and Jacob were brethren, and he despised it. Jacob, although a trickster and clever and crooked, he wanted it. He had a desire. That's the strange thing today. It's one of the paradoxes of life that there are some men today that actually seem to want to serve God, but they don't. They do the opposite. In fact, they'll do anything that is not even above board. They're willing to stoop to do something that is questionable in order that they might be able to serve God. And they are not serving God, of course, at all. Now, this man, Esau, then represents to us a Christian, a certain kind of a Christian, one who does not appreciate the position that he has as a son of God. He does not appreciate that he has certain privileges that are granted to him, and he does not use them. You hear this so much today, that so-and-so is not using up all of his potential. He's never reached his potential. And we hear it said that there are many people dissatisfied, and they feel frustrated 
because of the fact that they are not able to measure up to their potential. They don't feel they've been given the opportunity to do that. And I would say that that's the sad case today of many Christians who have a marvelous opportunity and a marvelous privilege of serving God, but they don't think it's worth very much. They are willing to sell it for a bowl of soup. However, today, they have a marvelous opportunity of serving God. I was in school with several men. They had a real gift of preaching, being a man of God. But they despised it, apparently, because some of them sold it out for a position of selling insurance. Nothing wrong with selling insurance, but if God has called you to preach, you certainly ought not to be out selling insurance or being a secondhand automobile salesman. I know one man that he entered the ministry, and he gave it up. And out here in Hollywood, he was selling secondhand automobiles. I consider that the selling of your birthright. This man actually a graduate of seminary. He had a real gift, and he's willing to give that up. And then how many have been in the Lord's work and just for maybe one evening, you know, of going out on the town, and it's ruined an entire career. There are many like that today. They sell their birthright very cheap. My friend, God has called those of us that have accepted Christ. We have a high and a noble calling, and we are to represent the Lord Jesus down here on this earth. Tremendous opportunity, and there are many options that open to us today in which we can serve God, and many of us do not walk into them or accept them. And there are those today that even... Worse than that, they don't drop into any sin just because of laziness. I know several preachers that they never were able to be good preachers because they were not willing really to dig in and study. I'm using these as illustrations because this is the crowd I've been with now for many years with preachers. I think I know them pretty well. And I see quite a few of them that are very lazy. They don't work, and you've got to work, my friend, if you are going to serve God. I don't care what you're doing, you have to work. A listener in Hawaiian Gardens, California, wrote concerning John chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Did Jesus break the Sabbath, or only the traditions of the Pharisees in regard to the Sabbath? I've read that some commentators say that he did break the Sabbath, but they leave the impression that it's not a problem. But I've also had others from a cult indicate that Jesus did not break the Sabbath, only the traditions of men. Could you please explain your position on this issue? Well, I'll read this verse that is apparently controversial for this man. John wrote here, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, that is the Lord Jesus, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, the man was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, and that was considered breaking the Mosaic law. I doubt whether the man was breaking the Mosaic law. I think this was the construction the Pharisees had put on it. The thing that they were objecting to was that Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath day. 
and technically he broke the Sabbath day. And if you want a confirmation of that, I think that we need to get away from did he break it or did he not break the Sabbath. The main point to make here is found in the other time that the Lord Jesus broke the Sabbath day. You remember they were going through the cornfields, which evidently was barley fields, and they were pulling the barley and eating it. These men were hungry. And of course, everybody forgets about that. These men were hungry. That's the reason they were pulling it. And the question came up, actually, they are working in the barley field, and they're cutting down the barley, and they're taking it, and therefore they're breaking the Sabbath day. And I'm of the opinion that they were, technically speaking. But the Lord Jesus said this, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And all of this is done to show that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and that what the old Sabbath spoke of has now come to an end. And the Sabbath day will no longer be observed for several reasons, by the way. The early church met on Sunday because that is the first day of the week. He was dead on the Sabbath day. The law belongs to the old dispensation. John says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And therefore, here we have the Lord Jesus actually breaking the Sabbath day. But why? He's the Lord of the Sabbath day. He's the one that gave it, and he is the one that has the right to. And the important thing in this incident here of the Lord Jesus healing that man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day, the question there was, doing good, is that wrong on the Sabbath day? And the Lord Jesus climaxes all of that by saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think that we should get it away from the point, did he break it or did he not break it? I think that he did break it. But the point he's making, regardless of the way you want to interpret it, He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's important. I think especially in this day when there are those that want to make the Sabbath day the day to celebrate. He's the Lord of it, and he could break it because a new dispensation is coming in. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. A widow in Santa Monica, California, sent us this question. Could you please explain 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4, 11, and 16? Now, 1 Timothy 5, 4 is a section in which actually the Lord Jesus Christ is here giving a great deal of instructions to a minister of how he is to deal with the different members that are in the church. And in every church, or women that have lost their husbands. And this woman was drawn to this passage of Scripture. I have a notion somebody called her attention to it. Now it says in 1 Timothy 5, 4, but if any widow have children or nephews, and that probably should be grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents for that is good and acceptable before God. And to requite the parents is actually to pay back what they owe them. In other words, that every person has a debt 
that they owe to their parents, and they ought to pay that debt. I was brought up in the old school. My mother's people were German people, and the German people were, with their background that they had, those that were Protestant, the family was very important and integral part of their life, and they were knit together, and children had a responsibility to their parents. And that, by the way, was scriptural, although I think it was carried too far. And in fact, I know it was. They felt that a child growing up in a home when he gets old enough is to take care of his parents. They don't do that today. The parents are on Social Security or they go to a retirement home. But we've gotten so far away from the scriptural part And I found out that in that atmosphere, when my father died, I was 14 years old, my mother went and took my sister and myself back to Nashville, Tennessee. And it was a whole German community we are in. And I want to tell you, there never was a boy that got as homesick as I got. I'd have given anything in the world to have gone back to Oklahoma where I had freedom. And it was made very clear to me that I was 14 years old, but I ought to start supporting my mother. And I had to get a permit to go to work, and I worked to support my mother. And I did that until she died. There never was a month that I did not send her something. And most of the time, it was her total support that she received. I was brought up that way and taught that. And I'm not sure it could have hindered me from studying for the ministry, but I had some wonderful help from friends that enabled me to go to school and have a job where I could make twice what the average student would make. That enabled me, therefore, to go to college. It enabled me to go to seminary. And I've been grateful for it, but I was taught that I have a debt to my parents. My mother's living, only one living, and so I assume that. But believe me, today things are changed. Today the children that are helping the parents, it's the parents helping the children today that are coming along. In fact, the matter is, I know many cases where the father and mother are taking care of their offspring even after they get married. Well, brethren, these things ought not to be. And what Paul is saying here, that if in the church there are widows, The church was, by the way, to take care of them. But if they got children, children should requite them. And that would be true of grandchildren. Also, that they would have a responsibility to grandpa and grandma. But that's not the way it's done today, but this is the way it should have been done. Now, this party also asks about verses 11 and 16. I imagine I'll just take each one of the verses But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. That means the young women, young widows, they'll be looking around for a second husband, and they'll turn against the Lord Jesus. They'll cease serving him. And therefore, the advice is given that you don't put a young widow in a place or position in the church. And I frankly think that's still is scriptural, and I know it's good advice. And then in verse 16, I read, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, 
let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. The whole thing is that if it's possible for the family to take care of the widow, and that's what they should do, then it's the family's responsibility. But if the family's not able to do it, the church, of course, is. And he's urging that this not be turned over to the church if there are those in the family that can support them. I think this is something very practical and something that you don't hear much about today, of course. We hope that you've had one of your questions answered on today's question and answer program. If not, we'd like to inform you of the excellent materials that we offer by Dr. McGee that'll help you in your understanding of God's Word. Browse our online store anytime at ttb.org or for a resource catalog, just call us anytime. And when you do call, you can leave your voicemail request and just make sure it includes your name, address, and the call letters of the station. For those of you who are interested in getting a copy of today's program, you can order it by contacting our offices or by going to our online bookstore. Be sure to join us this week on the Through the Bible radio program as we go through the whole Word of God book by book and chapter by chapter. To be added to our mailing list for notes and outlines and our monthly newsletter, make your request when you call or write. To contact our offices for the notes, catalog, or to purchase any of our resources, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at www.ttb.org. Now we pray that our God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of Through the Bible Radio Network. Mm-hmm.